Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. A few weeks ago, I did an interview with Hamilton Glass on the topic of how art intersects with mental health. Uh, Today, we're going to have part two of that topic with artist Jo Arnees. I know of her through Instagram. Uh, She is an artist in the Richmond area, and she was also a big part of the Mending Walls project, which uh, Hamilton had uh, talked about in that episode. So I'll be sure to to link that interview in the show notes as well. So, uh, Joe Arnese, for those who are not familiar with you, can you share a little bit more about who you are? Sure, yeah. I am a figure painter. And I've been painting for about three years now. And what excites me the most about it is that art is a way that feel, it feels like an effortlessly, excuse me, an, an effortless way to connect with people from all walks of life in the community. Um, and I can do that through exploring my own identity through the female form, ancestry, and culture. And it's, it's just an amazing way to connect with others. So for me, I'm just a girl looking for a way to start conversations with people, honestly. Fantastic. And uh, as you were talking, I was curious, when you said you're a figure painter, can you kind of break that down a little bit more? Yes. Yeah, so as a figure painter, that just pretty much means I focus on the human figure. My subject and my art will usually be about the human figure, just exploring people. Awesome. And I kind of chuckled to myself when you said it's an effortless way to connect people, because I was like, not everybody can do art to the level that you do. For those listening, I have a one of Joanice's pieces. <laughs> it's called Still, I, I think, is it And Still I Rise or Still I Rise? It's and still I and still I rise. Okay. The title actually came from the poem Maya um, by Angelou. Maya Angelou. Yes. yes. Um, and so I got that piece um, last year, and it was in the midst of we all know how hellish uh, 2020 was, and it spoke to me. And I actually have it um, in a little frame next to my uh, uh, virtual office space, um, and it reminds me. Uh, it, it almost is something to kind of resonate and relate to when you're, you know, going through things. So uh, I'm really interested to hear um, your story behind uh, the figure painting. I just, I had never heard that term before. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, for, so as I said, figure painting is literally just means that the subject is centered around the human form just a person is in the painting and for me it's it's the reason why I use the word effortlessly is is not pertaining to the art that definitely took lots of years to learn to do um lots of concentration and and yeah just dedication however I do not 
connect easily with people conversationally. I am a huge introvert. (laughs) So what I realized was that through art, I was tapping into a sense of shared identity with people who were like me and also who I would have never assumed we had anything in common. Um, And I, I could do so easily because they are generally just intrigued in the art. And so it, it naturally picks up and starts a conversation or engages others in a way that I'm usually not, not capable or I'm not gonna say not capable, but I, I, I sometimes struggle with doing in just a a normal or natural setting. Mm -hmm. We all have our, our medium of communication that is preferred, like our, our strong, strong version of communicating. Uh, I definitely relate with you on the being an introvert part. Um, So you're in great company because people will sometimes be surprised because I do a very social job. But what they don't understand is introvert doesn't mean you're shy. It means that you prefer conversations like one-on-one or in small settings. Um, So I thrive at that. But I'm very much an introvert, like a homebody and, and things like that. So I communicate best through writing. Everyone has like their strength on that. But um, I think that art is a very powerful and beautiful way to communicate um, a lot and, and one, and you know, each person who sees it gets a different message from it. So it, it's, right. it's one of the only, I guess, mediums that is, can have like a million different um, perspectives, I guess on it yeah yeah that is so true and that's what makes it so interesting you could talk about the same piece in a thousand ways and it's you're never going to have the same conversation with one person um as you would the next person about that same piece of art Mm -hmm. yeah so i i love that that is something that really pulled me into starting to paint yeah So you said you started painting three years ago? Yes. I actually studied art, but I studied graphic. My concentration was in graphic design. Okay. So I did learn to draw in school, uh, which is how I initially got into uh, figure art. Mm -hmm. But again, as I said, my concentration was graphic design. So mostly I was focused on uh, branding. I was interested in uh, print design, such uh, which is probably how uh, me designing greeting cards and things of that sort come, comes into play now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was actually intimidated by of painting. I, <laughs> that, was, that was something I was scared to delve into for years. Okay. And looking at your painting, that was actually surprising to me that you said you've only been painting for three years because it doesn't look like you've only been painting for three years. It looks like you've been doing this for a long, long time. Um, (laughs) So you're really good at it. And now that I think of it, you mentioned how you do greeting cards, the piece uh, and Still I Rise that I had mentioned that I have framed in my office. Um, is actually a, a greeting card of one of uh, Joanice's paintings. And I just got an idea as we're talking. I'm going to probably do like a giveaway 
uh, to go along with this uh, podcast episode to uh, probably one of my Instagram followers um, of uh, a packet of greeting cards um, as a way to kind of support the art, but also to give back to the listeners. So um, I will touch base with you about that. But to get started uh, on this, we obviously are living through, I think we're coming out of the other side, thank God, of some challenging uh, times. Um, 2020 was the worst. So (laughs) with that in mind, um, and obviously not just 2020, but the current climate, I mean, even this week alone, we've heard of at least two... um, tragedies that have happened with uh, black people at the hands of law enforcement. Um, So it's a challenging time just to be a black person existing, right? And on top of that, you have the added dynamic of being a black woman. Um, So there's kind of a, a double whammy there as far as how society looks at things. So can you speak on how being both black and a woman plays a role in your own mental health? Yeah. Yeah. So as you said, it is, it is facing, uh, what is it? A discrimination on multiple fronts as far as, you know, there is discrimination against women Mm -hmm. that prevents us from advancing in our careers or advancing to the same extent of a man in our career. Um, then there is also my skin color, which before, you know, as soon as I enter a room, I'm instantly judged on those two fronts before I open my mouth, before I Absolutely. Get, anyone gets to know me. And that is definitely something that drives me, um, and just everyday life, um, and, and in my art, you would notice that I, I well, I'm not. I'm not going to say that you would notice, but in my art, I I explore my own identity because it is a sense of. Uh, I explore my own identity because it connects me to myself. It gives me mm-hmm. a sense of well-being and a peace of mind. So you would notice that my subject generally are always female Mm -hmm. they're always black and it deals with uh hair i have a bit of an obsession with natural hair don't we all (laughs) any of us who have natural hair are obsessed with natural hair oh my god (laughs) once you really embrace your natural hair you can't help but to fall in love with it Mm -hmm. um it's a good kind of addiction though it is because it's like self-love in a way yes exactly it is it is really a thing that i feel like most people can relate to how hair is a huge part of identity regardless of your Mm -hmm. culture where you're from hair is a way that you express yourself Mm -hmm. and um really being able living in times like today where you're able to embrace your whole self mm-hmm. not so much as rebelliously like it was in the 60s and the 70s mm-hmm. you know during that time but as a way of just self-care and love is mm-hmm. so 
liberating and rejuvenating uh, to be able to do that in this time where, I mean, don't get me wrong, we still face discrimination. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> kids still get kicked out of school. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- women and men have to decide what are you going to do uh, in order to appear professional and a office setting, you know, especially yeah. if you're not working for yourself. God forbid if you're a man and want to grow locks mm-hmm. or just being black and wanting to embrace your natural fro state is just looked at as unkempt socially mm-hmm. in this society. And that <laughs> that right there, it, it, it's just so much to to take in and harness and so to not ramble and and oh you're no don't worry about rambling this is good (laughs) okay (laughs) oh for me i like to explore it because these are all things that i have dealt with and tried to balance accepting myself and loving myself for who i am Mm -hmm. while also at one point in my life trying to alter myself to fit into society's expectations Mm -hmm. and obviously that's two very opposite things you can't do both you either are going to embrace yourself or you are going to to be a chameleon and and change yourself Mm -hmm. and and of course in trying to do both (laughs) i would often fall into these bouts of depression mm-hmm. um i deal to this day i deal with like social anxieties Me um too. trying to yeah like just before i walk out into a crowd or start a conversation i'm instantly thinking like oh what does this person think of me like this girl mm-hmm. with huge a huge afro because in in my opinion the bigger the better absolutely (laughs) but because i know that 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 stands out even today as natural hair is becoming more widely accepted it Mm -hmm. still often stands out in a crowd and you become the center of unwanted attention Mm -hmm. simply because you look different than everyone else Mm -hmm. um and it's always interesting how people react to that, mm-hmm. to just my presence and being me. Yeah, and I'm I'm currently reading. Um, it's a real. It's like a really deep book, so I have to do it in like little uh, pieces. Uh, it's a book called Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome, um, and I highly recommend. By the way. Um, But what I'm, I guess, as you say that, and as I think of my own, you and I have talked about locks and things like that um, on Instagram. Uh, But, you know, as we think of our natural hair, there's like an underlying like hair anxiety about it is because our ancestors were under oppression for as long as this country has been formed, right? We're not Mm -hmm. that far removed from the institution of slavery, and we're still not really that removed from, you know, Jim Crow and systemic racism. So if you Mm -hmm. think about it, Black people 
expressing themselves for who they are is a new, it's a foreign thing to us because historically you look back, it's not a huge timeline of people being able, uh, black people being able to just be their genuine selves. And we still are dealing with systems that, um, you know, based on history are built to oppress. So the thing of like, you know, kids getting kicked out of school for their hair or, um, you know, uh, I talked about this in a previous episode. I did one on cultural appropriation and code switching. Um, yes. And I'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, but the idea that you have to appear professional, right? Um, and so uh, I, I relate with you on that. You want to go out and wear your, you know, big ass afro, right? Because you love it. Exactly. And, Absolutely. And, but at the same time, there's that underlying anxiety of, okay, how will the world perceive this? It's not like you're insecure about your hair. I mean, it grows out of your head that way, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, you're still dealing with the systems and the passed down ideals and, um, expectations of other people and then even in a professional um sense you know both you and i are entrepreneurs um that kind of towing that line of what is professional right um and so um like you i've um rocked an afro my whole life up until pretty much last year um when i started locking my hair but I've I had gotten comments from various jobs of oh you need to cut your hair uh, so that it looks professional and neat uh, and you know everyone's gotten the comment of oh your hair is nappy or God forbid someone thinks mm-hmm. they can come up to your hair and touch it um, yes that should be that so punishable weird. by death in my opinion <laughs> um, it is the weirdest thing you are really entering my bubble, my private space, and mm-hmm. you touch me. Like, I don't understand how others cannot comprehend that that is unacceptable. Mm. Yeah. It is just unacceptable. Someone to just come up and touch a part of your body. Like, this grows out of my head. And even you to ask, sister. even to ask, like, some people just do it without asking. Um, but... D- the the comfort level at which one will even be like, can I touch your hair? I've had random people, like at gas stations and stuff, be like, oh, can I touch your hair? <laughs> and that one, I don't. It, we're both introverts. We value our personal space. <laughs> right? But two, we have like a long, like we have a a drawn out process of even learning to trust somebody. <laughs> so. <laughs> From jump, you can't just, like, walk up to me and ask to touch my hair. That's like, you done skipped forward, like, three, four, five years of getting to know me. Um, oh, my God, yes. It's just not cool. <sighs> we do do a nice exhale on that one. It's needed. Yes. That's awesome that, you know, you've made hair and your own identity journey part of your art. And I remember you saying that... Um, times where you felt like you've had to kind of you know taper your hair or tone it down you've gone through bouts of depression but in any other circumstance if someone 
is hiding their identity, right? Right. You're basically suppressing a part of yourself. So no wonder why you felt depressed in in instances where you felt like you had to um, mute who you are for the comfort of other people. Yeah, yeah. Because you're you're hiding part of your identity, and the the only way to you know completely live free and have the best quality of life is to be genuine. So, I just wanted to comment on that. Yeah, and you you like hit it right on the head. That is exactly that sums up exactly a lot of where my mental health struggles stem from. Because mm-hmm. um, you, you mentioned earlier that you had a fro um, for most of your life, whereas me, I was strongly discouraged from a fro from childhood, and I didn't embrace my natural hair until about seven years ago. Same here. I believe I got my first relaxer when I was four, mm. and the cream crack. So- Yes, the creamy crack. And that is the perfect term. I know that is something that was coined by Black people years ago, but it is the perfect term because when I say I literally got my relaxer in on a six-week regimen, Mm -hmm. I did not miss a day. Six weeks were the minimum, was the minimum uh, recommended waiting period between getting a relaxer. Mm -hmm. And if I thought it was safe to get it earlier, I probably would have. Mm. Um, So, yeah. So for me, I always admired natural hair, even before it became this, this, well, I guess some people would have called it a trend mm-hmm. at some point. I don't. I, I think it's way beyond a trend. But I think it's more uh, of an awakening. Yes, that is a great way to put it. Because I, I was trying to figure out a word for it. Yes, absolutely. And so, for me, I I always enjoyed it. I would look at pictures of my mother growing up, and you know, she was a teenager in the seventies, mm-hmm. and. And she would have the most beautiful, perfect, round fro. I mean, Oof. it was perfectly round yes. in her pictures. And it was just the most beautiful thing. And I remember, so the only time I was not getting a relaxer was when my hair was uh, braided. Mm-hmm. Or there was some type of weave installed. Because, uh, yes, I did wear weave as a child. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> uh so when I had my weave or something installed, once I would take that out, my hair would be as close to its natural state then. And I would want to rock that for a while. I would ask my mom, like, can I just wear this like this for a day before we wash it and restyle or anything like that? And it would be just strongly discouraged. It, it I was, was. wondering it- where that, like, because um, you had s- said, like, wearing your hair in its natural state wasn't an option in childhood and my next question would have been where did that come from was it outside or you know within your circle so yeah so it was it was uh again like i said i personally admired it but eventually growing up and and constantly being told your hair is too nappy i didn't have the quote-unquote good hair Mm, oh my gosh had the big coil uh big curls 
my head the tighter coils that are generally associated with like uh Kinky. I don't know, can I say the N word? Okay. Oh yes. You you can say whatever you want, so go for it. <laughs> okay, so I have the tighter coils which you know, people where I'm from, they would be like, "Oh, girl, you got nigga hair. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't wear that out. You don't have good hair. You can't. That doesn't look good. Like mm-hmm. that is a mess. It looks like you don't care about yourself." Mm-hmm. So, growing up and hearing that constantly, and and it wasn't from. Let me let me make sure that no one thinks this was from a place of of hate or trying mm-hmm. to. It was coming from black people. Hate. Yeah, it was it was coming from black people, but it's coming from a it's it, interestingly it's coming from a place of love. They want to protect you, mm-hmm. um, and they want you to look your best, and they want you to not face hardships that comes with the idea of you looking unkempt. Mm-hmm. And so it's strongly discouraged, and it's not something that they're saying to belittle you, but something that is so deeply rooted in our culture that mm-hmm. that you know they honestly believe this is something they believe in your in in their heart that you are born with hair that is unacceptable, and therefore you need to alter it. Mm-hmm. And to exp- you know, I had mentioned the the book um, Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome, but. If you think about it, black people hating their hair in its natural form is a product of hundreds of years of oppression, right? It, anytime someone is is told to feel bad for existing, something's wrong systemically, right? Um, right. And so a lot of people, um, and in your your case, you were raised by black folks. I'm biracial, so I was actually raised by the white side of my family. And so, but on both of the, you know, we had different cultural upbringings, right? But both, like, my mother and grandmother and people on the white side of my family referred to my hair as nappy and unacceptable. To them, it was, you need to appear more like us. And so my hair, though it was an afro, it was cut short and it was like even all the way around. I never got a, I didn't see a real barber. Like you said, you kind of started your real natural hair journey about seven years ago. Mm-hmm. I think we're on the same timeline because I did not go to a black barber for the first time until I was well into my 20s. Um, and started like styling it and growing it out and letting it be big and be what it was and now with the locks too um it it's all a it's all a journey because it's something that was very oppressed growing up so what you said about like the people coming from a place of genuinely caring about you that that has nuance to it because on one hand they want you to go out looking your best but there's also a fear and they know sending my person my family my kid out into the world i have to have them looking a certain way because of how the outside world will, will perceive them so part mm-hmm. of it is protective in nature mm-hmm. it's not 100% like we hate our hair it's because for hundreds of years, we've had to be in survival mode. And we're still in survival mode in 2021, if we're being honest with ourselves. 
So, like, that's why we feel that tension when we go out with our hair, right? Right. Um, But then there's also that there's another dynamic of it's systemic hatred that is a byproduct of years of oppression. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it absolutely makes sense. And so you've mentioned a couple of times, like the post-traumatic slave syndrome, which um, I'm going to have to get the author from you because I am interested. It's Joy in DeGray. And I'll send you a link. Awesome. Awesome. And I'll, uh, listeners, I'll post, uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, that is something I'm definitely interested in reading. That was something I actually came across, that term, the post-traumatic slave syndrome. Something I came across uh, when I was working on the neural collaboration for the Mending Walls Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, that mural is titled The Spirit of Sankofa. Mm-hmm. And in that, there is a uh, two portraits uh, one of Marcus David Peters, because um, that that his story really resonated with uh, the artist I was collaborating with. Uh, his name is Ian Hess. His his uh, struggle with mental health really was something that he wanted to delve into, and I am always happy to to dig into and explore mental health in a way that is positive uh, so that people can rethink how they view it, how it's perceived. So in doing that, uh, in exploring that, um, as I said, I, my art generally is, is from the focus of the female form. Mm -hmm. And I always tie in my own, ancestry and culture mm-hmm. into art and so in doing that i chose to paint a portrait of a woman who is no one in particular and this woman is facing in a and she's facing to the left to imply that she's just facing a future that is unknown mm-hmm. um, because there is nothing painted in front of her and her hair is in thick locks that that are kind of windswept behind her. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that one was that, that particular piece learning about post traumatic slave syndrome really influenced that, that piece because I really wanted to tie in because I I can't personally, no one here can speak for Marcus David Peters and what he was going through Mm -hmm. um, on the day of that, that fatal incident where unfortunately. Can you give a little background on that for the listeners? Sure. So I'm sorry. And I'm speaking as if everyone knows him. I, I, you know, Marcus Davis Peters, his story is well known in the Richmond area now. No, but no he, problem. And also just for the listeners to we're talking about art in this podcast. Um, I'm going to do an accompanying uh, like blog post that I'll link in the show notes so that you can look at all of the pieces of art that we're talking about as you listen. So be sure to look for that as well. But uh, tell us about Marcus Davis Peters. Yes. So he was a 
a black man living here in Richmond, Virginia. He was a teacher and he also held a part-time job. I, I forget what that is exactly. And I apologize for that, but he, in, in a sense, was a, a pretty successful, normal, successful young man. Mm-hmm. And so there is a day where he has a mental breakdown Mm -hmm. and I don't know the cause of that Um, but what really resonated with I think both uh, Ian Hess and myself is that is is how it was mishandled Mm -hmm. because obviously in his state he ended up during his episode um, he ended up walking out of his job his uh, secondary part-time job Mm -hmm. and um, at a point that's unknown to uh, I don't I don't believe anyone knows when but he's he ends up stripping to the nude Mm -hmm. and he is found on a busy street later on um, disrupting traffic Mm -hmm. he he gets out of his car he's completely in the nude and he's disrupting traffic and you know obviously this is a situation that is that is it appears bizarre yeah it's bizarre and i don't know i can't i mean i can't speak for anybody else but as for me my first thought would be this person needs help absolutely like this this person needs help i don't know what he's going through this Mm -hmm. is this is not normal he needs help Mm -hmm. but because there is no system in place for mental health um there's no proper system in place for how to react to said situation Mm -hmm. it was the situation was responded to by a local police officer Mm -hmm. and Ultimately, that led to an alter, altercation in which Marcus Davis Peters was was shot, I believe, three times, mm. and that proved fatal, and so he died from that. Mm-hmm. So there's so much tied into into that, and racially, uh, systemically. <laughs> mental health wise it is there's just so many things that historically goes unaddressed that leads to events like marcus davis peters because he's not the only one Mm -hmm. he is the one that we most know about or at least in recent times here in richmond Mm -hmm. and that really, you know, this happened a few years ago, um, but the Mending Walls Project opened up an opportunity for me to explore Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. with an artist who was of a different background and culture. So ultimately, I was paired with an artist who was a white male. Mm-hmm. Our our project, we didn't actually have a lot of time to plan mm-hmm. um, because we were the first to to kind of launch the mm-hmm. Mending Walls project. And, and one of the first topics, like instantly when I met Ian, 
uh, and yeah, let's let's let me mention that Ian and I had not met before this project, so mm-hmm. it was not something that was simple. And it, it, this is not an easy topic with someone that you've known for years. So imagine it's like a blind date, into... but for art. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So and like a really deep into... systemic issue on top of that. Absolutely. You know, easy peasy. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> let's just pile all these things on top and go. Let's see what you guys come up with. Mm-hmm. And when we, when we began talking about like things that we could we could create and what do we want to address because um, obviously there's so many layers to what Black Lives Matter means. The one of the first things that like and he was passionate about sharing the story about mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, and bringing awareness to that. And so that resonated with me on, you know, from my perspective on a level that I wanted to explore post-traumatic slave syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I did that through the symbolically using uh, the woman's locks of hair Mm -hmm. to create some sort of like abstract timeline of of events or of history that occurred here in America. And so some symbols are easily recognizable. There is a cross. There is a massive ship that would represent the ship, uh, the slave ships that mm-hmm. brought uh, thousands of black people of Africans over um, and there are some less commonly known but cultural symbols in there as well, such as the cowrie shell or the actual Adinkra symbol, uh, Sankofa. Mm-hmm. And what is that? And so Sankofa is a symbol that was that. So its meaning is pulling from looking to the future Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, excuse me. Its meaning is pulling from the past while looking into the future. Mm-hmm. And so essentially what you're doing is you're you you are taking what you have learned from your past experiences and using that to navigate and go f- move forward mm-hmm. with the future. That's powerful. So and and that symbol was important to I think it resonated with both of us because that's exactly what we want. We wanted whomever was looking at our mural to walk away from like at least, at least fostering maybe the first step to changing how you view people with mental health, Mm -hmm. how to react to someone that you see who is obviously in need of help and may not be re- behaving in a way that would be easy for them to receive help mm-hmm. so that they're not attacked, that they're cared for properly in a way that needs to be done. There needs to be change in, in, in how that is addressed. Because honestly, today, if, if you or I was to walk down the street and someone is re- enacting someone some in somewhat of a bizarre behavior, what would we do? Like we don't have 
mm-hmm. a specific number to call. Like the number that you would think to call is nine one one, but nine one one police aren't trained in mental health whatsoever. Not at all. There is no mental health health care uh, response. Like mm-hmm. there, there, you, you get an ambulance or uh, paramedics come out if you are in physical need of mm-hmm. like you're bleeding and mm-hmm. they can handle that type of health care but mental but health I, is an invisible type of illness exactly and it needs exactly. to be treated as such exactly a lot of the conversations around um obviously you know police reform and stuff like that it goes to obviously defund the police and to come up with a system of community policing um and a lot of some of the conversations that are being had um, are talking about who is a person that's most trained to deal with Mm -hmm. a crisis like that. There are crisis units. There are um, services, mental health services that are specialized in dealing with, um, you know, uh, people experiencing psychotic symptoms or, and psychotic doesn't mean crazy. It means, um, uh, having delusions or hallucinations, which is a chemical thing. It's not a personal trait or evil or anything like that. We got to break stigma when we can. There needs to be a community approach to it. So the person who's responding to the call is not a armed police officer who, I'm not shitting on law enforcement here, but facts are there to show that police officers receive less hours of training to operate their machinery and weapons than does a beautician going through beauty school to get their cosmetology Mm -hmm. license. Um, So a person who is responding to, say, a person who's naked and needs help and is being bizarre and making people possible, I mean, you know, it's a sign that you need help, right? Should not the person right. who shows up should not be someone with the tendency to reach for a weapon. Uh, we just heard this week uh, the officer said, "Oh, well, I was reaching for my taser and I accidentally reached for oh. my gun." Which they're completely different on different sides, and also they weigh different and they feel different. But again, I digress. The person showing up shouldn't be an armed person. It should be we have licensed clinical social workers. I'm a licensed professional counselor. We've got whole crisis programs that are set to deal with um, things like this. There are, in cases where a person is becoming a danger to themselves or others, there are therapeutic restraints trainings that people are trained in that can de-escalate. First of all, words, communication is a great way to de-escalate something. Law enforcement officers are not trained to de-escalate, to use words, right? To talk Mm -hmm. to someone on a human level. They're trained to be on the defense. Um, And, yeah, reform is going to be easier said than done. But you're, you're absolutely correct. We still don't have a system in place. And it's important to remember, too, that when these things happen, when people uh, have either a psychotic break or they're experiencing mental health symptoms that are bizarre or erratic in nature, we have to remember, don't assume that the person is dangerous. 
I, we're not saying go up to them and try to like restrain them or anything because you're not trained to do that. Um, mm-hmm. But remembering that they're not a bad person because their deck of cards that they were dealt involves mental illness and challenges to that. They are just as human as you are. They have just as much value. Their life matters just as much as your do- yours does. But using your words, like there are so many problems in life where you can talk something through, you can ask questions, you can change your tone of voice, you can, uh, you know, change your body language to show that you're being neutral. Um, There's so many different things that can be done before you reach for a life-taking weapon. Right, right. Right. And in saying that, because I agree with you wholeheartedly, in saying that, I'm not saying that, you know, the police are bad people. I'm not either. But what what is terrible is that because there is no system in place, like, so you're informing me that there are trained professionals who Mm -hmm. know how to de-escalate an issue like that. The fact that that's not public knowledge that's a problem. Well, there the are trained professionals, but they don't, they don't, they, the law enforcement doesn't partner with mental health professionals to make that a ready that, available service. That is a problem because again, you, so we know that 911, we learned this as children, 911 mm-hmm. in case there is an emergency mm-hmm. and yet mental health is ignored and there are many cases where mental health becomes an emergency. Mm-hmm. And so it gets thrown on the police. And so it is unfair to them as well. You know, like I, I don't want it to seem like I'm attacking police officers mm-hmm. because I understand that it's like they're kind of the catch all for like, oh, we don't know how to handle it. So mm-hmm. we're going to call the guys who are specially trained in in handling uh criminal situations or violent situations or you know someone who has no idea how to handle a a mental health issue and so we're not talking down on law enforcement when we have these conversations but it's it's if we were to take it out of this context and just do a comparison of something different if let's say uh, someone is having a financial emergency Somehow it's fallen on your plate, Joannis, the artist, that you need to show up and deal with it. What about being an artist and a graphic designer prepares you to walk in and deal with someone's financial crisis? What training does your art background do to prepare you for that? Right. There's right. none. There's none. That's exactly <laughs> what's happening when we send law enforcement people who are trained to deal with violence they're trained to respond to emergencies and and things like that deal with domestic disputes and things like that we're having them go in and somehow need to have a psychology degree and a counseling degree a social worker degree training all of this stuff that that doesn't happen at the police academy so clearly we're we're calling the wrong person Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but all of that, all of that ties into uh, the post-traumatic slave syndrome 
that you mentioned a few times earlier, it just kept bringing me back every time I would hear you mention it to to the mural that we that Ian and I painted for Mending Walls, mm-hmm. because a lot of that that the central focus of that was actually addressing mental health, and hopefully um, those who viewed it understood they understood that. Uh, and I think the, with the Mending Walls project, every mural has a podcast episode that goes more in depth with it. So um, I'll be sure to link yes. the website for Mending Walls to this episode as well so people can dig a little bit deeper. Were there any other uh, pieces that you have um, that kind of had a mental health theme uh, that you'd like to share about with the audience? And I'll be sure to you know link those images as well. Sure, sure, sure. So... Um... First of all, let me say that to me, just about all my pieces in some way or form delve into mental health because again, it is an exploration of my own identity and my own experiences. And it helps me to hone um, my hone into my own sense of self and mm-hmm. my mind. Uh, and although I may not always publicly share that uh, just about all my pieces are somewhat centered on that because uh, I, I definitely still do to this day struggle with depression. Um, but that being said, I want to refer to one of my earliest pieces um, called Beauty of Phi. And that one is the only portrait I've done where it's it's of a woman who is completely bald. She's hairless. I love that one. So that one actually stemmed from a debate that I had with a friend of mine who we got into a debate about standards of beauty. Mm. And I argued that beauty stems from within and is in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. And he stood by the fact or yeah, well, for for lack of better terms, the fact that beauty has standards and beauty can be proven factually and is not just an opinion. To which I would say how sway. Exactly. That's how <laughs> I felt. <laughs> exactly. I was like, how? And Ooh, so Those are fighting words. I mean, it, it, it got a little heated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just a little bit. Um, but... So what happened was I also um, around the same time period of this debate was um, it was a heated debate. I don't want to say argument, but because uh, it was amongst friends. But yeah. uh, <laughs> but what was happening is we so we're both artists and mm-hmm. we had an exhibit um, coming up with the theme being sac- sacred geometry. Mm-hmm. And so as I was researching sac- sacred geometry, what that means and how it's tied to basically everything in the universe, I came across um, the golden ratio, which is tied to so much. It is often explored in art and mathematics and in science and and in just about everything. And the reason being is because the golden ratio is something that can be found universally in outer space and how the stars and the galaxy will align to our very uh, DNA and how the double helix is, is shaped 
or how a flower grows in the sunflower. You can see the golden ratio in the spirals that grow mm. uh, and how their seeds grow. And so it's literally in everything. And so in, in studying the uh, sacred geometry and how it relates to the universe and I came across this article and eventually several articles about um, how the golden ratio, there were studies done, scientific studies done to prove that beauty was indeed factual, that it could be held to a certain amount of standards. Now, I don't know that there have been enough studies done for it to be accepted for it to actually be accepted as fact, but there is a, a, a theory out there that beauty is based on a certain set of standards. And that means that your facial structure, your body structure, the more perfectly it fits within this ratio, which is also referred to as phi, hence the name of the piece, mm -hmm. beauty of phi. Um, that this ratio, the, the more that your proportions fit within this ratio, um, you are going to be perceived as beauty because this ratio, which is 1.618, it's actually a, a, a number that goes on infin inf uh, infinitely. However, it's generally shortened at that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's considered a universally, a universally beautiful number, the most perfect or most beautiful number. Mm-hmm. And if you, if your proportions and your face and structure, bodily structure fits into, into this and you are beautiful and that is going to be universally perceived no matter what society you're in, no matter what your cultural background is, you will be perceived as beautiful. What is your take and on so, that? The validity of that? So for me, I... I still call BS, right? Okay, I was hoping, because the whole time you were saying <laughs> that, my entire, like, but my shoulders are, like, up to by my ears. I'm, like, tense just hearing <laughs> this. Um, I'm glad that you called it bullshit. Um, yes, because, I still call BS. <laughs> and when you read, because I know you said you're going to check out the, the book that I had mentioned, there's a whole section, there's a whole chapter about how people quote called themselves being scientists but it was really based in opinion and racism um they've mm -hmm. done whole things on like the shape of your skull the shape of your nose the oh, how gosh. they study quote studied scientifically and i'm putting heavy air quotes around that i know you can't see me because this is a <laughs> podcast but they studied and it's basically they projected their racial bias to it actually like that science justified slavery in general like it it really kept the institution going to prove that well they don't meet the standard of humanity let alone beauty and so all of this bogus it's called pseudoscience um has been used to justify things but there's no way that there can be a standard of beauty because one is born the way that they are one is given we don't choose to be born People might come for me. That's fine. Uh, my email is johnzell at panoramiccounseling.com. I will <laughs> block you. Um, but there's no validity in that. Uh, the beauty of humanity is its diversity. And exactly. I think we had talked about that before. Like, we come in different colors, shapes, sizes. 
Um, and quite frankly, as we go back to our conversation on black hair, our hair does acrobatics that other folks' oh hair doesn't God, do. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> any sort of standard that says you need to fit into this box in order to be perceived as beautiful, I call bullshit. And we see it playing out in our society now. People are paying thousands of dollars for big asses, breast implants, and no shade. No shade on people who have augmented their body and made changes. But this ideal or this standard of beauty is a multi-billion dollar industry. Because if you can convince people that there's a standard then they have to change themselves to fit the standard. And quite frankly, if you weren't born with it, the standard of beauty is flawed. So, and the standard of beauty is unachievable, right? Absolutely. Unless you got nobody uh, money to to do it. Well, yeah, unless unless you have money. And even in that, I mean... But you're you're aligning yourself with the standard of beauty that is flawed from the the jump because if it's a standard of beauty and it's universal everyone would have access to it because we're all equal in our humanity. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. those standards are, are ever changing. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause as you were saying, people who alter their bodies, uh, like right now, big booties are in thin ways, big boobs, but that's not uh, even natural. Back. <laughs> it's not. Um, Gotta have ribs removed back. and stuff to have that shape. Oh my God! It's the the courses that alter your ribs, which presents health health problems. I'm not even going to dig into that. Um, but but those standards change. Oh, but that brings me back to brings me back to the painting because so in Beauty of Five, what I wanted to do was it was it's sort of my own personal social experiment, and I love to see how people react when mm-hmm. they see this painting, and. I explained just enough for them to understand the golden ratio and, mm-hmm. and, and why it's called beautify. But essentially what I did was I took the ratio and created her face. Her, her, this portrait is made to fit within that ratio, mm-hmm. but also it is, juxtaposed with um with uh features that and especially in american culture but in uh cultures worldwide mm-hmm. are viewed as unwanted undesirable detestable and Ooh. so i purposely wanted to give her darker toned skin i didn't go super dark but enough where some people would call her dark skin. I don't know. I'd say mm-hmm. brown skin, whatever. Um, a woman with no hair, I mean, skin bald is generally like, and and I've heard this in, in a lot of reactions is, am I commenting on illness such as cancer? Ooh. And, and I'm not. I'm not. It is. She's it's, gorgeous. You know, so, <laughs> and, and so ultimately what I am doing it's a personal social experiment every time I see someone react to this painting because I want to know, do you still view her as gorgeous? And you, John Zell, just let me know that, yeah, you still view her as gorgeous. Uh-huh. Um, you still view her. You still see her beauty beyond the features that are considered un- unattractive. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And also, like, in, in, in the painting, I wanted to give her fuller lips, which is interesting because now full lips are in style. But it, for Ten years, years ago, it wasn't <laughs> in to have full it, lips, and now everyone wants to be out here looking like Jay-Z and right. paying good money for right. it. <laughs> right, right. And so I was trying to pick, pick uh, features that would... You know, essentially what I'm doing is trying to fit within those guidelines of she would be perceived as beautiful. Like, what are you saying? Like, are you saying that if you fit within this ratio, you are an exception? Are you one of the people who, you know, that backhanded compliment that black people all often hear? Oh, you're pretty for a dark skin. Mm-hmm. Or you, you look good to be dark skin. And it's like... Um, I mean, I don't know if you are complimenting me or insulting me. Like, which mm-hmm. one? We cover that in the you... cultural appropriation episode. I gotta, I gotta go back and listen to that. I'll send, you, I'll send you the link. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank we you. We cover because... that that saying in particular. To wrap up, um, I want to kind of give you the floor. So I know you through Instagram and Mending Walls, but I want our listeners to uh, be exposed to your art and your work and everything like that. If you don't mind, share your website, your socials, um, uh, where they can support your art and what you do. Absolutely. So you can always find me by my name, which is Joe Ornice, and that is spelled J O. W-A-R-N-I-S-E. So my website is joeornice.com where you will find uh, uh, fine art prints of my work. You will find greeting cards. And every now and then I may do something special like uh, about uh, a year ago and once 2020 uh, dropped the bomb on us. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I did do a a release of masks and things because I wanted to contribute to the community. And um, I used a part of the proceeds to donate to Feed More. Um, Awesome. So I I do special things every now and then out of the blue. Uh, And a big part of my art, as I said, is engaging with others. So giving back to the community. I have a few murals that are around. And you can find those mostly on social media, especially on Instagram and Facebook. Again, at Joe Warnice. Uh, you can always find me, also find me on Twitter or uh, Pinterest, but primarily I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Mm-hmm. I'll link all of your socials in the show notes and your website. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Go out and support Joarnice, y'all. Um, her work is fantastic. Um, and I still don't believe you when you say you've only been painting for three years, but well, <laughs> you know, we're, we can't do a lie detector test over the, the podcast. So thank you. I will you. happily take one. <laughs> yes. So once again, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with us today. Um, yeah, this is, this has been a great conversation. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.